Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Earlier this week, House's First Nation in Saskatchewan, Chief Cadmus DeLorme, joined Prime Minister Trudeau and Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe to sign an agreement with the federal government for Ottawa to fund locally controlled child welfare services. And Cowessas became the first indigenous group to sign such an agreement with Ottawa since the Act Respecting First Nation, Inuit, and Métis children, youth and families, came into effect last year. So the chief is back with us. Chief Cadmus DeLorme is back with us. We're going to talk about a few issues. Chief, thank you so much for coming back on. Hi, Roy. Thanks again for welcoming me back. May I, before we talk about anything else, get your thoughts on uh, and, and your reaction to the appointment of uh, Mary Simon as the first Indigenous Governor General for Canada. You know, first of all, the Crown relation with Indigenous people in this country is getting stronger. There's a lot of work to do. The treaties, the the first people signed a treaty, in, in my area, of course, Treaty 4 and other number of treaties, with the Crown. So that position is really key to, to the significance. To know that um, our current now uh, General, um, our, our Governor General, is of indigenous um, descent uh, in you, in you, in this perspective. You know, it's a rising hope that um, you know our our females who who are gaining a lot of strength in this country. In this case, an indigenous female playing a significant role. I, I feel is very optimistic for the relationship for all Canadians moving forward. Yeah, I think an excellent uh, decision, an excellent choice, and I think what's been happening, uh, Chief, over the last weeks, particularly in this country very much influenced, more than likely, the uh, the choice of uh, Ms. Simon as the Governor-General. But again, an excellent choice, an excellent decision made. Uh, also, your thoughts on uh, Chief Roseanne Archibald as the new Assembly of First Nations National Chief? I've uh, talked to Roseanne a few times. We shared a CBC moment a couple weeks ago together. She spoke very well. She's a strong voice. Uh, I look forward to working with her. Um, you know, the, the AFN is not an easy task. And, you know, and this is why the West Coast uh, have a certain perspective it needs, they, they need. Uh, the Central uh, First Peoples, we have certain needs, uh, you know, treaty implementation, uh, funding uh, models need to be adjusted uh, for the fiduciary obligation. And then the East Coast, you know, they have their, and then the North. So, you know, that position, regardless of who it is, is a tough position because you're trying to balance many perspectives. This time, again, uh, a female uh, leader, Indigenous leader. I, I look forward to seeing her vision unfold and her mission as she starts to share. Okay, uh, Chief DeLorme, then let's speak about your community, uh, Cowess's First Nation, the first Indigenous group to sign an agreement with the federal government for Ottawa to fund locally controlled child welfare services since that act respecting First Nation Inuit um, and Métis children. Uh, youth and families came into effect last year. That was accomplished. I mean, was that accomplished very quickly? And tell us, please, about about what the what that agreement in fact entails and what it does for your community. Thank you, Roy. You know, last Tuesday, this past Tuesday, was an uplifting day for Cows First Nation. We had two leaders come and stand beside Cows, uh, Prime Minister and Premier of the Province of Saskatchewan. They spent almost six hours with us on Cowses together. We showed them our culture, our truth, our pride, and we signed the coordination agreement. Really quickly, Roy, you know, we're talking about truth in this country. I want to just really fast give you a chronological why we're in this situation. 
So Cowsen's First Nation never gave up jurisdiction to our children. 1876, the Indian Act was enforced on Cowsen's. No consultation with my, my ancestors. 1951, Section 88 of the Indian Act, the province come in told, told Cowsen's, we have jurisdiction over your children. Again, no consultation. No, we, we never gave up that jurisdiction. In 2021, April, Cowsen's First Nation asserted jurisdiction over our children using both our, our hybrid model, the Canadian Section 35, as Bill C-92 in, in the Crown's perspective, uh, now the Act. Cowsis, we ratified our own law called the Mio Pima Tisuin Act, which in Cree means striving for a better life. And on Tuesday, uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier come and stood beside us, invested in it. And Cowsis First Nation, we look forward to one day having no children in care, all with our Indigenous ideology approach to child welfare. Do you see this, uh, the agreement that you signed on Tuesday, as a template for other First Nations? Roy, we put over 100 hours of meetings to get this coordination agreement. That there was no template, there was no other coordination agreement. We all three came to the table and looked at each other and said, let's put down our shields, let's reset our minds, let's not try and incorporate the old system. And Cowsis is driving this from the beginning to the end. Canada and Saskatchewan never once come in with a paternalistic attitude. So now that we're done, now we're telling all other rights holders and other provinces and the federal government, please, you know what, we we spent over 100 hours on this. We like it. If anybody wants to use it as their template, please do it. That's the cow's way. Okay, and uh, very important to your community, everyone in the community, clearly. Absolutely. We Again, I said this last week, we inherited this situation. And the best way to get out of it, Roy, is let the rights holders, who, which are their children, let them control their destiny. You know, and the governments do play a role. They play a role to understand the ideology of their approach, because we're in this hybrid model together. We're all sharing this collectively. At the same time, investment needs to happen. You know, this is a fiduciary obligation. You know, um, the prime minister came to Cowses and, and launched the $38 million. Like, we have a concrete plan to that, every dollar, to make sure that we make the biggest impact on the intergenerational trauma within Cowes' First Nation. If we can do this correctly within a generation, Roy, our, our budgets in our provinces, in our country, and in, in Cowes' can adjust to more economically, to more social impact. But we all have to understand, we got to invest in a little bit of what we all inherited, and this is it. Okay. Now, during our conversation last week... Uh, we spoke about uh, what was taking place in in some parts of uh, the country, and that is the burning of churches. And I, I heard from a, a number of listeners who I think uh, didn't hear um, what you had intended to say, and I know you want to address that. Thank you, Roy, and thank you all for, for sending your messages. I, I, as a leader, one leader in this country, want to make sure that I accept my mistakes and my errors. You know, I use the word condone. I, I said last week, you know, quote unquote, I condone burning of churches. In my mind, Roy, the definition of condone last week was, you know, I disagree. Unfortunately, I was wrong on that. You know, when I say that, you know, I, I do not condone burning of churches. If I can go back, that is what I would have said. I am a man of faith. You know, I want to make sure that if people want to pray with religion, that's their point. I just want to make sure everybody has faith. Right now, people are, some are angry, some some are bitter, you know, and last week I said when Cowes' church burnt down in 2018 and how the different people come up and said their perspective, 
I never went to residential school, right? So please, I'm not trying to act like I did it. Some people who did go do still today. We need to let them heal and let them, you know, find, you know, a means to, 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 to help them. But at this point, as one person in this country, churches should not be burnt down. Thank you, Chief. And one more question for you, because we live in a society where older people are often pushed to the side, deemed to be not particularly valuable or up-to-date anymore. And I know in First Nations culture and communities, that is not the case. Please speak to us about that. Thank you, Roy. In, in an indi- when I say Indigenous ideology, you know, Indigenous philosophy, you know, it, it, it's, I, I, I'm so optimistic it needs to be welcomed into to Canada in so many means. And one of our means is our knowledge keepers, our elders, our Kateyak in one of our languages, Cree. You know, those are the ones that have earned their right to make sure that as we're making decisions, you never go forward without making sure your elders, your seniors have their opinion said. You know, you know, I, I did make a comment last week about, you know, baby boomers and different generations, you know, and definitely in the chief fight, I work with that in my nation and every generation has this different perspective. But, you know, one of the things I really wanted to, to bring forward and, you know, helping us all with better understanding of Indigenous ideology is as a country, we all rely on our baby boomer generation, our elders, to, to be those leaders in their families, in, in, in just just speaking up to making sure that, you know, no one is left behind in this country. And what we've last seen in the last month and a half with Kamloops, Kauses, and many more to come, we rely more than ever today on our baby boomers. Chief DeLorme, thank you for the time. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, everybody. All the best to you. Chief uh, Cadmus DeLorme from Kauses First Nation in Saskatchewan. There's a headline uh, in Mississauga.com in Ontario the other day. And it said, uh, doctors combating vaccine hesitancy, expressing frustration, caring for unvaccinated patients. So we're going to speak with Dr. David Jacobs about that. He's the chair of the Ontario Specialist Association and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. He's very, very outspoken. And Dr. Jacobs, I appreciate that about you. We also, we always talk about the segments we air with you as being the intersection between healthcare and politics. How are you today? Doing quite well. Thanks for having me. Because nobody ever asks a doctor how you are. <laughs> That's always nice. Thank you. Uh, let me just ask you about this uh, this story out of the gate. And I will tell you, I've seen, if you go on my Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show and you read some of the notifications, people are absolutely uh, polarized on this issue of vaccination. Some of the emails I received I couldn't possibly read on the air. So can you talk to us, first of all, please, about your thoughts about folks who are refusing to be vaccinated because of fear the vaccines are not properly tested and pose serious health threats? Well, um, there simply is no truth to any of that. Uh, The vaccines were very thoroughly tested on a large number of people. And furthermore, we've had the opportunity through mass vaccination programs uh, to follow an immense number of people to see how they respond to vaccines. So they were vetted as thoroughly as any drug has ever been vetted in in the past. The vetting was accelerated, uh, but the methodology and the number of people who were 
tested uh, was uh, as good as any other drug that we've tested in the past. So people are mistaking uh, or are misinterpreting what, what actually happened, right? Doing it quickly and efficiently is not the same as doing, uh, as doing it uh, in an unacceptable manner. So the vaccines before they rolled out were proven to be safe. And as we get more and more data, we see that they are indeed quite safe. So the headline was doctors' frustrations um, dealing with patients who refuse to be vaccinated, particularly patients who test positive for COVID and still balk at being vaccinated. Could you speak to that? Well, there's always a balance in medicine. Uh, between patients' rights uh, and the rights of the individual and what's best for the patient. And at the end of the day, it's really not up to a physician to um, tell the patient what they they must and must not do. That's not our position. Our position as physicians is to uh, explain to patients what is in their best interest Um, what the benefits of a therapy are, what the risks of a therapy are, and then allow them to come to their own conclusion. Uh, It used to be that doctors would simply tell a patient what to do, and that was considered a paternalistic approach to medicine, and that's been out of favor for decades now. So, uh, but physicians are allowed to have their frustration. When you Look at what's happening in the U.S. Uh, There's a much, much larger vaccine hesitancy and anti and simple, simply anti-vaccine movement. Um, And then when you look at the hospitals in the U.S., 99% and more of the patients who are in hospital with COVID and in the ICUs with COVID are unvaccinated. So it's not open to debate. Vaccines prevent people from from being admitted to hospital and they prevent people from being admitted to the ICU. They are tremendously effective at doing those two things. So, you know, we can only present the information to the patients and hope that they follow our good advice. So, Dr. Jacobs, when we have some doctors... Uh, like Dr. Robert Malone, who was on this program three weeks ago, says that he was the inventor of the mRNA technology, uh, expressing concerns about the spike protein. There have been blood clots associated with the AZ or AZ vaccine, as we all know. Mm. Heart inflammation among usually younger people who've been vaccinated. Where does that fall into the overall picture? Well, it's, it's very interesting. So when we talk about the younger patients, that's when um, we've got to, um, again, be very careful about how we approach this. And different countries have approached this in different ways. But we also see that there's an inconsistency in what people are saying. So we understand that in order to achieve herd immunity, we have to get to a certain percentage. Some people put it uh, at 80%, People some people will put it as high as 90% of the community. Now, if you are truly concerned about the health and welfare of people age 19 and younger, uh, then it is incumbent on you as an adult who is older than 19 
to get vaccinated because that 80% or 90% has to come from somewhere. And if we, and if the younger people are at low risk of hospitalization with COVID and there are significant complications from getting the vaccine, then it's incumbent on those who are older to get vaccinated so that we can achieve herd immunity. Okay, so now all let's that, let's do the switchover. Sorry, did you want to say more? Oh yeah, all that having been said, both of my children who are in that age group are vaccinated because I believe it is in their best interest and the risk-benefit ratio favors vaccination, in my opinion. Okay, so... Um, Let's switch horses in, in midstream here. Uh, we've in the past talked about how, you know, we call these segments in the intersection of healthcare and politics. And on previous program, you mentioned that uh, many people in, in healthcare are probably left of center in their thinking. We have a federal election coming up, no doubt, before the end of the fall. Uh, do you believe there's going to be political involvement uh, from the medical profession in the, in the, in the, in the election? Well, there already is. Uh, and we can see that uh, at a provincial level, uh, and I would expect the same at a, at a federal level. Um, unfortunately, uh, COVID has pushed a lot of the medical community uh, into, into the spotlight. And it's not a place that we're trained to be in, and it's, and it's not something that we do particularly well. Uh, but a lot of people have taken to social media to use the pandemic in order to put to score political points. And I see no reason why that's going to end uh, with the upcoming federal with the upcoming federal election. I expect we'll hear quite a bit from a lot of physicians. And probably maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe that's not where doctors should be. So opportunity for us to talk again then. <laughs> oh, I suspect we're going to be talking quite a bit. <laughs> Dr. Jacobs, thank you for the time. Always good talking to you, sir. Pleasure. Talk soon. Dr. David Jacobs, he's the chair of the Ontario Specialist Association and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. Mr. Kahn, I spoke with him yesterday morning, and he is so absolutely terrified of what he feels is going to happen to him and his family if he isn't removed from Afghanistan, if he isn't um, brought to Canada, served with Canadian forces as an interpreter. And as you know, we've had Canadian forces members who were in Afghanistan tell us on the air, the interpreters saved Canadian lives. They've said it repeatedly. Mr. Khan is, again, terrified of what may happen to him and other interpreters. We had Major General Ahmed Habibi on this program, uh, who was the charge of a brigade of the Afghan National Army, fought alongside Canadian soldiers, received the Meritorious Service Medal from Canada. He's also, and you heard his son, you heard him two weeks ago, say that they don't sleep in the same location for more than two nights because they're so afraid of the Taliban and the insurgents closing in. So three Canadian Major Generals and former commanders in Afghanistan have written an open letter calling on this country, on Canada, to patriate Afghan interpreters who worked with CAF troops in Afghanistan. The generals warned to not bring the interpreters and families to this country will end very badly for them as Taliban and insurgents have threatened interpreters and families with death, and some have died. 
We're joined on the program by one of the generals, Major General Dean Milner, who was the last commander, Canadian commander in Afghanistan. General Milner, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it's great. It's a pleasure to be here, Roy, and uh, thank you. You and uh, Generals Thompson and Fraser wrote this open letter to the federal immigration minister. What is the message that you are sending to the immigration minister? Well, I think, uh, and you mentioned it, but there's a lot of uncertainty in Afghanistan right now. And I think we have an absolute moral responsibility uh, to help those that soldiered and and worked alongside of us in in Afghanistan. Uh, The situation is tough. The Taliban uh, have uh, momentum and uh, we we need to do something about it and we need to react quickly Uh, other countries are doing the same and i I would like to see us uh, help bring these uh, afghan interpreters home or or to canada to safety general milner how valuable were these interpreters to the canadian forces on the ground in afghanistan uh, invaluable that they, they uh, you know I, I had uh, interpreters that patrolled with me on the ground we have a one of our famous ones here Amal who actually lives in Toronto and I could not have done it without him I was in significant key meetings key leader engagements with Afghans again talking to people on the ground um, they, they just they, we couldn't have done it without them and uh, we took them out of safe places I'm all living in Toronto uh, trained with my brigade, picked him up, took him away from his family, put him into Afghanistan. That's one example. But again, they, they fought alongside of us. They, uh, we had at least six interpreters that died alongside of us uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, it's an absolute obligation uh, for us as Canadians to, to, uh, to make sure that their safety is, is paramount and, and their well-being. I was told uh, on several occasions that the Taliban and the insurgents would target the interpreters first in any firefight because they knew how valuable the interpreters were. Yeah, absolutely. There's a danger of, of retribution for sure. They they know how important they were to us, and they didn't like the fact that they were working alongside of us. Uh, and there's more. Uh, you know, General Abibi, as you mentioned on your show, we need to move his family out. His family's been targeted. Um, he We fought alongside of him. Uh, I want him to stay. I'll be very honest. I want him to stay and fight the Taliban. Uh, the Afghans need to fight the Taliban, uh, but but the bottom line is, yes, we need to get interpreters, their families, because there's no doubt in my mind the Taliban are an absolutely ruthless bunch, and they'll, they'll, they'll kill. Uh, they will kill without thought, without even a second thought. So, yes, we need to move them out of Afghanistan. General Milner, there was, a, and it's been talked about a fair bit, there was a national program in this country in 2009 to bring the interpreters to Canada, but it was very limited. And some interpreters have told me they weren't even aware of it. And because they were out actually on patrol with Canadian troops while this limited program was underway. Uh, It it was an excellent program. We actually did bring a fair number of, uh, of interpreters home, but um, it it only lasted two years and uh, we, we need to, we need to do something very similar. Um, you know, we have an ambassador over in Afghanistan. Um, we, 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 we can get this program going again. Uh, we may need help from, from other, other countries like the United States, 
but there's no doubt in my mind we need a program again uh, ramped up quickly and and set into motion so that we can take care of these uh, these interpreters before that uh, retribution starts. Yeah, in that open letter, you and uh, your fellow generals made the point that there's very little time here. That this is uh, time is of the essence to get them out. Do you expect that the the Taliban will essentially sweep across Afghanistan, except for maybe a few small areas? I don't know that. I really, uh, I, I'd say the next six months are critical. Uh, there's potential for civil war. Uh, there's potential for a whole bunch. I, I would like to see the, the Afghan army stand and, and beat the Taliban. I, I just can't understand why anybody, uh, the people, the government would want to allow a uh, just a heinous group to, to be able to, uh, to take over this, this country. Um, so, but yeah, I think time is absolutely of the essence. We do need to act. Uh, we do need to act quickly. Um, there's fighting as we speak. Um, the fact that we lost Panjway, I could go on, is, is just, it, it's a kicker for us who sacrificed and, and, you know, we lost, sacrificed Canadians when we fought. And I was there in 18 and, and it was in, it was in pretty good shape. You know, it was, uh, there was no Taliban around. And uh, but but now they've they've taken over a district center and and that district and more more areas of Kandahar where we fought and uh, it just it's really really disheartening for us. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it must be because we had many reports about the fighting in Panjway area. You've also said that the CIF veterans uh, of the Afghanistan campaign they view the interpreters as comrades in arms. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I'm still friends with my interpreters. Um, Amal and I just spoke the other day. Um, he's fortunately back in, in Canada. He started. We have a lot of tremendous Afghan families here in Canada. Um, and anybody I fought alongside, uh, we've kept in touch. General Habibi and I patrolled, um, fought, killed Taliban together. Um, you know, we're passionate about the country. We're, we're passionate about the country going the right way. But also, we, you know, there is that moral obligation. We, you know, we, 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 again, we fought alongside them. We want them, them safe. Uh, we want their well-being, their families taken care of and, and brought to Canada. The people of Canada have an opportunity and perhaps also an obligation, based on what we're hearing from you and what we've heard previously, to, to actually persuade the political uh, establishment to take the steps that you and your fellow generals are telling them to take in your open letter. Other NATO countries are resettling their interpreters and Afghans who work with them, the United States, the UK, Australia, uh, I think some European countries are as well. Have you, by the way, have you heard back from the federal immigration minister to the open letter you sent him? I, I, we, I haven't, uh, and maybe some of the of the crew have, but I haven't heard anything back. Uh, I know this, it's a, it's not an easy process. I know it's, but what we, we do need to hear something fast. Uh, this needs to be a plan. Uh, it needs to be put together. Geez, I'd be prepared to help. Um, you know, we really do need to get this going fast. We have a team on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, we've got a list that we're generating. Uh, we do have contacts in Afghanistan. We have General Abibi in Afghanistan that can assist us. We have other interpreters here. So, but uh, I haven't heard anything direct yet. 
General Miller, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. And uh, to you and everyone in our armed forces, thank you for the service to this country. Thank you, Roy, and I really appreciate uh, being able to pass the message. Thank you very much, and have have a great Sunday. Yeah, you you too, sir. Thank you again. Major General Dean Milner, who was the last of the Canadian commanders during the Afghanistan, the NATO-Afghanistan campaign. Another former Liberal MP who was elected in 2015, she was also the parliamentary secretary to Mr. Trudeau, and uh, I was very interested, and I'm very glad she's on the program because I'm very interested in her reaction to Jody Wilson-Raybould's decision to not seek re-election in Vancouver-Granville because their situations, I think, are not entirely dissimilar. Um, Selena Caesar Chavan was the parliamentary secretary to Mr. Trudeau, an entrepreneur, a very successful woman, and uh, she was not treated particularly well by the Prime Minister. And uh, Selena, thank you very much for coming back on the program. I think your book, by the way, Can You Hear Me Now, is fantastic. It's a great read. It's a necessary read for people. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me, Roy. I appreciate it. Every time you call, we have a great conversation. We do. Thank you. So what was your reaction? And you know Jody Wilson-Raybould. What what was your response reaction to her announcement of just a few days ago? Uh, so my my first reaction was to send her a message, just, um, you know, a text message just saying, you know, I, I see you, I love you. Like, this is going to be a hard moment. It has to be a hard moment and it's going to be hard for some time. She's great at her job. Um, and to leave a job that you love because the nature of the the job is so toxic that it pushes you out um, is gut-wrenching. And I just wanted her to know that I, I understand exactly how she feels and I know why it was necessary for her to leave. In her letter to her constituents, and I have it here somewhere with all the paper, but essentially, and I read a few lines from it earlier, but essentially in the letter to her constituents, she writes about leaving because she was involved with the parliament in steep decline as far as fulfilling its responsibilities ethically is concerned. And those are my words, not hers. Would you agree with that sentiment, though, based on your time in parliament, that it is an institution that is in decline? Um, I think, and I I can only speak to the fact that I have served under a particular prime minister, the current prime minister. And I think that when we first started as you know, if everybody could could just travel with me back to 2015 when we were talking about open, transparent government, doing government differently, um, a feminist government, government that valued diversity, that the most important relationship that we had was one with Indigenous people of Canada. To where we are today, I would say, yes, there has been a steep and steady decline over the last few years. Um, that have that have followed the rhetoric of our current prime minister. Yeah, when you were elected in 2015, he appointed you as his parliamentary secretary. Um, you made a decision during your first term in office not to run again. Would you right. be able to share with us, with my listeners who don't know, what it was that ultimately made you decide not to run again, and then? And I know you've said this, you've told this many, many times, but I think it's central to the to the behavior of the man when he described himself as a, as a fem- feminist, how he treated you 
because we know how we treated Jody Wilson-Raybould. What happened? What made you decide not to run again? And what was that meeting like with Mr. Trudeau when you told him that you weren't running again? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you said that, that it's it's central to the character of the, of, of the man. And I, I want Canadians to, or your listeners to understand that this is not just about me or Jody. Think of this as a microcosm of a bigger issue when we think about some of the issues that plague our country. So when I, I left, uh, the four years of, of politics that I was there, um, in 2015, telling the prime minister I didn't want to be tokenized. I was the only black female elected. Um, out of 338 uh, members of parliament. And I was very specific that I did not want to be a token in this government. I didn't want to be a a parliamentary secretary to the prime minister to fill any gaps in racial or gender gaps that he had in his cabinet. He assured me that that wasn't the case. And I I believe that. But in my four years, I could summarize them quite easily. In 2016, the whole year was an embarrassingly tokenistic role that I played, only being asked to go to Black events uh, internationally. In 2017, I was excluded from a lot of major conversations we had around the budget, around fulfilling some of the Uh, commitments that we wanted around equity, in particular with Black communities. In 2018, I was gaslit uh, for talking about racism, but I was not protected by a party that said that they valued diversity. And by 2019, I decided I had enough um, that I was not going to run because clearly the contribution I was making to that party was not being valued and or respected. And I would say that after I decided I wasn't going to run, I decided to sit as an independent. And if you read the the last line of page two of Jody Wilson-Raybould's letter, that this is why it was the um, the lack of courage, the lack of courage to speak the truth and the failure of bystanders to support those who do. It was the mistreatment, not only of myself, but what I saw Um, especially of Jody Wilson-Raybould within the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the lack of courage to just be honest about what was happening within our government, in our democratic institution, and the lack of those around the prime minister to say, to step up and say, no, 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 you need to do better. And that was, um, it was a heartbreaking moment then, and it's it's still heartbreaking now. Yeah, I have uh, just found her letter, except for the line that you just read, that's still mired, buried somewhere in all my paper. You should see how much paper I have in here. I probably will get into environmental difficulty. It's just the way I do things. I, I, I like paper. Um, she, she wrote, in 2015, I ran to be the MP for our newly created riding of Vancouver Granville to drive change on the critical issues facing our community and all Canadians, including Indigenous reconciliation, climate change, social and racial justice, and building an enduring economy in a rapidly shifting world. Fighting for transformative change on these matters is what I was doing before I became your MP, uh, as she writes, when I was regional chief. I just, as I read that, I sense some, I mean, the real disappointment, the rest of her journey, some of it we are privy to as Canadians, some Mm -hmm. of it we can deduce from what we know, but that just, those words to me just ring of absolute disappointment and almost a sense of wasted effort, wasted on this man and his government. Now, you wrote in your book about what happened after you made the decision to not run again. 
and how you felt at that time and when you got up in the morning how you felt remind us please uh you know it i i just it, it was the same feeling of incredible disappointment to know that you you go to an institution like our federal parliament to make change and i just felt like you know i was banging my head against the wall, against the wall and the decision to to not run again it's you decide well do i want to bang my head against the wall for another four years or do i want to try to make change from the outside and unfortunately um again i can only speak to this government uh, i didn't serve under any other prime ministers um the decision was quite easy for me to walk away because i knew that whether we were talking about any of the issues that uh, Ms. Wilson Raybould uh, put in that letter, climate change, reconciliation, or, or social and racial justice, or building an economy, we were not doing that in a way that created equitable outcomes for people that needed it the most. Yeah, Sully and I can tell you this each time I speak with you on the air, and it's I always enjoy the conversations a great deal, but each time after you and I speak, I receive emails from your former constituents in Whitby reminding me how much they appreciated you being MP and how much they miss your presence in Parliament. You're going to make me cry, Roy. That's true. It's true. You made, you made the impression on people. You know, this is what we look for as, as Canadians. We look for people, whether we agree with them or not, we don't always have to agree. But we look for people who we can trust, who we know they're going to be honest. We know they're going to do their very best. And we know they don't have ulterior motives for sitting in that seat representing the people in their constituency. And that is you. Right. And you know what? I, I, I just want to say, to just to reiterate that, the people of Whitby, it was my greatest honor serving them and my greatest disappointment to leave that position. But I knew and they knew that I was a straight shooter. When they came into my office, there was no wishy-washy. There was no, oh, I'll consider your your point or I'll consider. I was I was so honest with them as to what I was going to do. There was no consideration. Either I was going to help them or I was going to give them an, an alternative. I wasn't going to let them leave my office feeling unsure about what was going to happen next. And that is the most disappointing part. This is why I texted Roy, I mean, sorry, texted Jody and said, this is going to be hard because the people that you love and who love you and your constituency are going to be, there's going to be a hole. There's going to be something missing there because they knew, agree or disagree that the person who was their voice in Ottawa was going to fight for them no matter what. And um, it, it is a challenge because I, I love my community. I love the people of Libya. I love the people that I served. Well, they love you right back. And I do want to let people know, read Selena's book, Can You Hear Me Now? Because one thing you'll find out, that even as a little girl, and I'm talking five, six, seven, eight years of age, she was not wishy-washy then either. <laughs> Roy, I love you. Every time you call me to come on this show, it's just that you, you make me, you, you, you're just a great person to just chat with. I just, I love it so much. I cannot wait until we meet in person. Well, me, me neither. So we'll have to make sure that that happens now. For sure. Thanks, Selena. Take good care. Thank you so much. You be well. Bye-bye. Selena Cesar-Chavan, former Whitby, Ontario Member of Parliament, reader book. Can you hear me now? It's, it's really worth a read. It really is. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 